Thank you, Brother Mike. If you will, turn to the Gospel of John, Chapter 8. The Gospel of John, Chapter 8. And we're going to look at another one of Jesus' declarations today that he makes to a crowd of people and see how this affects us and the repercussions that it has for us. So John, Chapter 8, and primarily focusing on verse 12. It's a familiar verse to most of us. We've heard it many, many times, and I hopefully this morning uh, through God's Spirit and then through uh, the text as we walk through it, we'll see the revelation that it has for our lives today. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said this. Jesus spoke again to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I would challenge you over the next week or so to take the Gospel of John and to read uh, specifically John 7, 8, and 9. They are all set in the same time frame, the same time period. John has picked these moments and these encounters that Jesus has had with people uh, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah and to show that his role is to be the Savior of the world. And John 7, 8, and 9 is, is essentially uh, one week or one two-week period of Jesus' life that John gives to us and he gives to the world to see Jesus as a Messiah. And so when we look at this chapter, it doesn't stand alone. It stands alone with verse seven or chapter 7 and chapter 9 of all these happening hand in hand. And the chapter has two bookends. It starts with a plan to stone and it ends with a plan to stone. And so we know the story, most of you probably are somewhat familiar with the story of the woman who is brought in front of Jesus and they're charging her with adultery and they say, under Moses' law, she should be stoned to death. They're standing in front of Jesus. They have the stones with them and they're essentially asking him for his permission to stone the woman. Except for the fact that the scripture tells us, John tells us that looking back, this was a farce. They weren't really about stoning the woman. They were about stoning Jesus. Uh, it says that they brought her to trap who? Jesus. They, they, wanted, they wanted to catch him in something, and so he does this. And so at the beginning of the story, they come in with the stones. They're, Jesus is teaching in the court of the temple, and they bring these stones, and they bring this woman, and they say, essentially, accuse her or basically accuse yourself. Let's see you get caught in something. And so when they do that, and then at the end, when Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am, essentially declaring that he is God, that every Jew would have known that two-word phrase, I am. It's the same phrase that God gave to Moses when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush, and Moses said, i got to go back and tell those people that someone sent me to them. Who do I say sent me to them? And Jesus said, well, tell them I am, he who is from the beginning, he who has always existed, he who knows all things, he who holds all things, is what is encompassed in that word I am. And so he says to him, tell him I am sent you. And then later on, Jesus, a couple thousand years later, stands in front of the crowd and says, I am, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews know this is a declaration that he is God. And they pick up the stones again that they had evidently at some point set down in this discourse to stone Jesus. It's interesting to realize this because this is a temple courtyard. More than likely, the courtyard would not have been full of stones that were, uh, you know, useful for stoning someone. So this is a planned thing. And let me just read it to you very quickly because I want us to remind us of this. 
Verse 3, it says, The teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The person they were attempting to stone in this is Jesus. And so as we work through this passage, I want to remind us of a couple of things. When we understand this situation, I want you to envision a family reunion. Most of you have been to one. And most of you have an annoying relative or an annoying cousin or someone who always makes sure that they say something that everybody else hears. Now, let me just say something. If you don't know who that person is, it's probably you. Okay, if you don't know who the annoying sibling is in your family, it's you. But anyways, so this person says something. Imagine you're in a crowded room and this person makes a bold declaration, uh, something foolish like, you know, the Bulldogs are going to win a national championship or something, okay? And then the rest of the room may respond to that and then they begin to break into their conversations back among themselves. And a few minutes go by or 30 minutes go by and it, maybe it gets quiet again and then this person makes another declaration that people respond to and then they dissolve into groups again and they talk again. Jesus is not standing in front of a crowd with a microphone and he doesn't have an interrogator in front of him with a microphone. He's teaching in the court of the temple. Now, tradition tells us more than likely more than one person would have been teaching in that court as well at the same time. And so Jesus is teaching. He's got a group of people around him. But in the midst of this teaching, when they bring this woman into stone, all attention is on Jesus. And Jesus realizes it and takes it. In chapter 7, all the attention had gotten quiet because the priest is pouring out the water offering and the wine offering. And Jesus stands up and he takes that moment as well. And so he takes this moment and he says, I am the light of the world. And then the group goes on and they begin to have conversations back and forth with Jesus. And he makes other statements and declarations as well. And let me give you some context to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is in the court of the temples. During this Feast of the Tabernacles, there were four, I don't know how to describe it other than to say gigantic lanterns that were lit at each corner of this entrance or this, this area. And they were great. They were huge. They were 50 feet high in the air, some people say. Some people say they were higher than that. And they would take, you know, just gallons and gallons of oil up there. Envision, you know, an Olympic-type flame scenario. They would take gallons of oil up there and fill those things uh, and then they would light them on fire at night, at the time of the evening sacrifice. And as the sun went down and it got dark on Jerusalem, the temple is up on this hill. You would see these great four huge balls of fire burning in the night. Well, to the Jews, when you say, I'm the light of the world, and when you think of that thing, there's some things that are happening there. Those four great huge balls of fire are signifying the Shekinah presence of God that filled the temple. They know what that is. They know this is a picture of God coming down to dwell with them in the temple. When, when the temple was finished and Solomon dedicated it, God filled the temple. When the tabernacle was finished and Moses dedicated it, God filled the tabernacle. And so the Jews understand that to declare that I am the light of the world in the temple courtyard where these great huge lanterns were there was to declare one thing. And that one thing is this. Jesus was literally declaring that he was God and that he was the very presence and person of God. 
He's not saying, if you follow me, then your life will go better. I can help you out with your morality. I can help you out with your purpose in life. He is saying, if you follow me, I am the very personhood and I am the very presence of God. Also, if you think about the Jews in the wilderness, what were they led by at night? A pillar of fire. So they would have had understood these illustrations. And so when they do this, they bring this woman to Jesus and they say, accuser. And Jesus goes through what he does with her, where essentially he doesn't respond to them. He says, you know, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Then he forgives the woman and sends her on her way. He is declaring it's the presence of God. And in that act, Jesus actually fulfills the highest fulfillment of the law, the highest requirement of the law. See, a lot of times we focus on sacrifice, and we say sacrifice is the highest requirement of the law. But the highest requirement of the law is mercy. The highest gift of the law is mercy. Jesus giving his life on the cross was an act of mercy. It was an act on his behalf for us. And so he does that and he declares this. And by the way, if you want to have an Old Testament way of referring to that, do you remember David and his relationship with Bathsheba and his guilt there? By the law's accords, what should have happened to David? He should have been stoned to death, should he have not? But God gave mercy. And go read Psalm 117 and Psalm 118. And Psalm 117 is this long. And Psalm 118 is this long. And David declares over and over in Psalm 118, what? The mercy of the Lord, what? Endures forever. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. He says something. He says, oh, by the way, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And that is what he built it on. That's the highest fulfillment of the law is mercy. And when Jesus stands in this crowd, he declares this to this woman. He says, I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees have a problem with that. And, and it's interesting that we should look at their problem today, and we're going to look at it in three different parts, because their problem is, I, I find 2,000 years later, is my problem. I, I struggle with these same ideologies that they're portraying here. And their first problem is this, you don't look impressive enough. I'm sorry. You're just a little peasant-looking fella. You look like a farmer or a carpenter from Galilee, that's not what God's going to look like. God is not going to look humble. I, I have that problem. I, I don't see God often in humility. I don't see God in the presence of the forsaken. And so they say to him, and let's look at it very quickly, and we won't read every verse simply because of time. But Jesus says this, and, or the Pharisees start out in verse 13. They say this, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, Jesus had a lot of other witnesses. Let's just list them very, very, very quickly. He had the witness of the man he had healed in chapter 6. He had the witness of the 5,000, or in chapter 5. He had the witness of the 5,000 plus that he had fed in chapter 6, and on and on we could go. There's a lot more witnesses, and they know that. So what they're essentially saying is we reject your witnesses. And then Jesus points to this. Jesus, when he, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, he never responds to exactly what they said. He responds to why they said it. Look what he says. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. You have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. And then listen to this. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. And what Jesus is saying is this, the word judgment there, you can substitute the word condemnation. Jesus is saying, you look at me and you condemn me because I don't look like I'm enough. He said, and yet I look at you and I don't condemn you. 
I don't say that you're not enough. But yet you look at me and you say, you can't be the very presence of God because you're not impressive enough. They're passing judgment and condemnation upon him. And Jesus reveals their heart by pointing to their dependence on outward appearances. Jesus' focus was on doing the will of the Father, and he was unconcerned about passing condemnation. And I have to tell you that as someone who says, my, my goal, my purpose, my uh, reality in life is I want to please God, it is so easy to get tripped up in condemnation. It's more fun. It's easier. It, you, you do realize it is easier to pass condemnation than it is to pursue God. At least it is in my life. It's easier to say that person doesn't measure up, this one doesn't measure up, this situation is whatever it is. And we focus on that. And so I want us to read something here. In verse uh, 19, or verse uh, 17, Jesus says this. In your own law, it is written of the testimonies that two witnesses of truth. So he is rebuking them because of their outright law. He says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And let me just give you an illustration of how, how we have a tendency to do this. And how I've done it with my children, and maybe some of you have as well. And the danger it brings. We are more impressed when an athlete stands in front of a camera and says some verse or some phrase about God than we are with the person that we work with for 30 years who quietly goes about their business and serves God. We love to talk about when a celebrity says something positive about God because why? It, it, it bolsters us. And we forget about the man who worked at the same job for 20 years and every day in the break room he'd listen to the people boast about what they were going to do with what they got and how great they were and yet he used what he had to give to God. He used what he had and his skills. They were taking their vacations and flying all over the world and nothing wrong with enjoying a vacation like that. But he was taking his vacations and serving God and ministering to others. They were going home in the evening and boasting about what they got away with from their wives and he was going home in the evening and trying to serve his wife. We forget about that when we think about the teacher who sits in the, who sits in the room and they talk about the child who has been disciplined time after time after time and everybody in that room passes condemnation on that child. I don't want them in my class. I can't stand them. They're a problem. Their brother was a problem. Their sister was a problem. It's their mama's fault and they're all going to be like that and nothing's ever going to change it. And that one teacher that walks out of that classroom and looks for that child and says to that child, I love you. I care for you. You are valuable. But we spend our time praising some celebrity because they said a verse, and we forget that the heroes, the true faith people, the true people who believe in God, are the people that you and I are walking past every day. And a lot of times we're looking at them with condemnation. We look at that teacher and we say, why are you wasting your time? We look at that man and say, why don't you have a better dream for yourself? And we pass condemnation because we don't think it's impressive enough. Friends, Living in the presence of God may not look impressive to others, but it'll sure be impressive to us. It'll be challenging to us. It'll be life-changing for us. And this is what Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees said, no, you're not. You're not impressive enough. And Jesus said, you don't understand life. Then they go on to their second thing. And Jesus now promotes this one. He takes a shot at them. And let me read it to you. To the Jews who had believed on him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now they go on to talk about Abraham, and Jesus says this, you are caught in your sin. 
Let me look at it here. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong one. Well, last night, tonight, this morning, they all blurred together, and uh, they blurred together. But you will find that passage in there where Jesus says, you are consumed in your sins. And Jesus says to them that their problem is, is their self-promotion, their self-adulation, the self-reality that they were going to do, that they were going to promote themselves, that it's all about themselves. And he is pointing to them, and he is saying this. In verse 23, I apologize, I've got it now. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving. You can't go where I'm going. And they said, where are you going? We don't understand it. And Jesus said, yes, you can't understand where I'm going because you're caught up in your sins. And where Jesus was going... He later on tells us, he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Where Jesus was going was to the cross. Jews couldn't fathom that. There's no Messiah going to give His life. The Messiah can't lay down His life. The Messiah has to fight. The Messiah has to defeat. And Jesus says, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it through sacrifice. And they can't understand that because their whole idea is self-promotion. And so for him to call a Pharisee a sinner, you have to understand what this was. These guys paid people money to make sure they didn't sin. They, they did all sorts of things. They didn't break the law. They didn't sin. In their eyes, they never sinned. And Jesus looked at them and said, your problem is you're a sinner. I mean, that's the greatest sort of blasphemy that he could have done to them. And let me just give you an illustration. They were buying the little angel TV box before you even had TVs and boxes to buy. I mean, they, they were making sure that they didn't have anything profane or anything bad past their eyes. They would literally walk in certain directions and walk in certain ways and wear certain garments to ensure that they didn't, quote-unquote, sin. And Jesus looked at him and he said, you're full of sin because it's all about self-promotion. It's all about the reality. And he points to this because he says this, I'm willing to go to the cross. And the reality of it is that it, for me today is this. 2,000 years later, Jesus' statement to us is still, take up your cross and follow me. It is not beat everyone into submission. It is not make sure everyone follows your ideals. It is not make sure you get everyone to do what you want to do. Jesus says this, take up your cross and follow me. They would, they, the Pharisees would never sacrifice themselves. They could not comprehend that. They thought a sacrifice had to be an animal or someone else. The issue with sin is not moral behavior, but rather their need to acknowledge how they were using their goodness to promote and prop up themselves. And in the third section, the Jews come back at Jesus and they say, here's the real problem, bud. You don't appropriately appreciate our heritage. And they begin to pull out Abraham, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants. In verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, first of all, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. How many years were the Jews slaves in Egypt? 400 years. How many people had conquered the Jews and taken them away as slaves time after time? The Babylonians, the Assyrians... Group after group had enslaved the Jews, but yet the Pharisees looked at Jesus and with the clearest, brightest eyes said, we have never been a slave. While claiming that their heritage was what sustained them, they were unwilling to recognize the faults of their heritage. 
I'm not going to go there, folks, but that sounds real familiar. By declaring that it was their heritage that made them what it was, but being unwilling to recognize the faults in their heritage, Jesus looked at him, and, he, and when they did that, Jesus said, Oh, boy, I got something for you now. And listen to what he says. He goes on to call them children of the devil because of their lying spirits. And he says, you have really exposed yourself. Their idea of serving God was based on their heritage. This is proof of their self-promotion, which Jesus exposed. And Jesus revealed the true meaning and purpose of Abraham. It was not to have physical children, but to signify a life of faith. And let me show you that in verse 39. Because they come back and they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said this, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He lived in faith. He was in the city of Ur with his father and his brother, and life was whatever life was for Abraham. And God called him, and Abraham said, I'll go. God called him to a place that was populated with people, and God said, I'll give this to you. And Abraham looked at it, and he said, I'll go. And on and on, that's Abraham's life. You can go read it in Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 22. That is the story of Abraham. It is a story of faith. Sure, he did just like you and I. He stumbled and he fell. But when he stumbled and fell, he repented and he went back. And he placed his faith and his dependence in God. And then Jesus doubles down. And this is the finale of it. And he points out that they had been willing to use deception to promote their own agenda. And he said, because you were willing to use deception, that proves that your true father. Now, he's not talking about a physical being here. What he's talking about is their dependence. He said, your true father is the Satan. The what? The accuser, the liar and deceiver, the one from the beginning who set about to get whatever it was that he wanted. And so Jesus looks at those Jews and Pharisees, and what is he doing? He's hearkening back to verses 1 through 4, where they drag this poor woman in front of Jesus, not to make sure that the law was kept whole, but to catch Jesus in a lie, to catch Jesus in a fault, so that they can accuse him. And Jesus says, the fact that you're willing to exploit someone else for your own goodness proves that you're of your father, the devil. And then he leaves them with that. And so I want us to go down. And they, they go on. They accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. They accused him of being a Samaritan, which is probably the quickest. You know, it was just when you say something mean to somebody and, and, or somebody says something mean to you and you're trying to quickly figure out what you can say back to them, that's what they responded with. Well, you're a Samaritan. And Jesus says, well, I'm not, and I'm not demon-possessed either. And so I want us to close by looking at verses 54 through 56. They go on to say that Abraham is dead. This is an interesting declaration because the Jews believed in the resurrection if they didn't believe in anything else. But they go on and say Abraham's dead and the prophets are dead. And what they're really telling Jesus is what matters is me and my life right now. And this is Jesus' response. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. And listen to this verse. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John is taking... Jesus' statement here, and he is pushing all of us, 
all the way back to Genesis 15, Genesis 16, Genesis 18. And he says this, Abraham believed in my day, he saw it and rejoiced. What day? The day when faith is made sight. Abraham left Ur by himself, took his nephew, his responsibility with him. They get to Canaan. Do you remember the story of when they get to Canaan and he and Lot get too big? Abraham looks at Lot and he says, your choice, buddy. When Abraham did that, that's a life of faith. That is seeing the day of Jesus. Literally thousands of years before Jesus ascended the cross, Abraham saw that. He saw that sacrifice and he acted it out. He said, it's your pick, Lot. And what did Lot choose? The best. And what was Abraham left with? Whatever was left. And when Abraham walked away from that, do you remember what God did? Abraham built an altar to God to worship God, not to pout and moan about what Lot had just done to him, but to worship God. And God said, Abraham, Abraham, it's all going to be yours. It's all going to be yours. And he's not just talking about the fulfillment of 600 years later, the Jews populating the land of Canaan. He's talking about the new heaven and the new earth, which God is yet to bring to life. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about when Jesus comes back and takes everything and rebuilds it and makes it whole as he originally did and repopulates it with the children of Abraham, the children of faith. He says, Abraham, it's all going to be yours. He said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He's talking about the fact that Abraham was 99 years old and an angel comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, uh, I have a son. His name is Ishmael. And I really wish, God, you would, you would say, Ishmael's my son. And God says, no, Abraham. I told you there was going to be something miraculous between you and Sarah. That's going to be your son. And Isaac is born. And Abraham's faith becomes what? Sight. And time after time, Abraham's faith becomes sight. And Jesus said, Abraham saw my faith, saw my day, and he rejoiced. The day of Jesus is a day of faith. The day of Jesus was realizing that it's the presence of God with us right now. He says, I am the light of the world. I am present with you. Light is not just to illuminate things for obstacles. It is to shine within us and it is to reflect on us and have us illuminated. So this is what God has called us to. Let's pray. Almighty God, it's your word. It's our hope in you. It is your faithfulness that we depend upon. And God, understanding that Jesus' declaration that he is the light of the world is understanding that today I have to say once again he is the light of the world. In my world, in my circumstances, and in my life. And it is to declare our dependence upon you. So Lord, we seek to do so. We know, Lord, that you will give grace where faith is sown. And so we do so, knowing that it is your glory that we seek. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.